This week's Data Nuts podcast is sponsored in part by Interop ITX, the only independent conference for technology leaders. Get a year's worth of objective IT education in one week. Visit interopitx.com and use promo code PACKETPUSHERS for a 20% discount. You get an object and you get an object. Everyone gets an object. Okay, I mean, that's not as cool as free cars. But in this episode, we're going to set our phasers to awesome, which is a real setting. Check it. And check out the exciting, distributed, blobby world of object storage. So strap in your safety belt and enjoy a moist mug of Romulan ale as we punch the warp drive into the unknown. Howdy, I'm Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall. And with me is my co-host, who has won seven back-to-back international thumb wrestling championships. He's Ethan Banks at EC Banks on the Twitters. And this is the Data Knots Podcast. Welcome, everybody. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packetpushers.net. Obviously, based on the title and the intro, object storage will be a topic of discussion. And I brought an expert with me. We have the infamous Enrico Signoretti. I'm trying to do it. That's my English-Italian. Welcome to the show, Enrico. Who are you? What do you do? How are things going? Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. And, uh, well, you you pronounced that really, really well, actually. And uh, (laughs) very Super Mario style, which is is good, by the way. Better than Signoretti. This is what I usually get when I present myself at the hotel with my passport and they read it, Signoretti. But that's okay. I joined OpenIO a couple of weeks ago now, and I'm a head of product strategy, which is a very nice title. And the idea is that I started a a long time ago working with uh, object storage vendors as an analyst and as a blogger. You know, I'm a fan of object storage. It's not the fanciest of the technologies, but actually because people don't know. If you start to dig into it and you start to, to look into the kind of infrastructure that you can build around it and the kind of data you can can manage, it's quite an interesting technology. So that's it. And for the rest, I built my own boat. And uh, this is something that I usually tell at dinners and that kind of stuff just to... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> To get people interested in the discussion. Build your own boat, as in like a, a sailing boat you would take out on the ocean, that sort of a boat. Yeah, yeah, that sort of boat. So I, but, uh, he builds yachts, the, the man. Project, uh, 300 yeah, small yachts. 41 feet, yeah. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and uh, so I bought uh, the hood, all the stuff, and, uh, and I started building. I have friends. I, I live in a, on the coast, so some of my friends work uh, in that field, and they helped me with some stuff and that's it i use it uh, all the time sailing and if you follow me on twitter you you know some fishing sometime i'm not very lucky with fishing uh, <laughs> you're so, an established so, silo buster from from object storage to building boats i mean you you do it all you check all the boxes i was always thinking of you i read your blog at juku the italian stallion of storage right so, i mean take us back a little bit just to establish for those that are meeting you for the first time when did you start diving into the world of storage? You know, what were you doing that got you interested in storage? You're very passionate about it. What kind of sparked that for you? Well, actually, you know, I started in the early 90s, maybe something something in the late 80s, something like that, okay, just out of school. My first work with uh, was as a sysadmin for a reseller. 
we started selling some microsystems and we were working in the field of the pre-press. So actually, these kind of guys moved from a very proprietary system to PostScript and large size images just for the time. And I, and I remember that this huge disk, like a three inches disk, very high disk, like four times the, the height of a three inches disk today. And it was like one gigabyte, something like that. And we got five of them. The first write system sold. It was huge. It was uh, yeah, one meter high or something like that for just five disks. And four gigabyte in, uh, in one, you know, in a single bulk with the right size, five. And, and the customer didn't have the money to buy a spare disk, something like that. And from that, I was fascinated by this word, by the connection. At the beginning, it was SCSI, 25-pin SCSI. Do you remember that SCSI one? And then the best kind the... of SCSI. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You have always this thing of the seven devices chained together and the termination at the end was quite nice. And, you know, we started with that and I was fascinated. I saw, I think, all the brands, all the storage system. And then I started my small system integration shop. I had like 10, 12 people working with me and doing projects all around Italy, always based on storage, mostly on storage. That's it. Then I left it. I started Juku Consulting and for six, seven years now. I think I told you almost everything about me. <laughs> when, when, I, when I started Juku, of course, at the beginning, we are the same customer, but just for consulting. And then I started writing in English and some, some work from abroad. And at the end, it was uh, old blogging, fancy blogging, nice blogging, and that's it. So, Enrico, you're in a world now of object storage. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's my understanding of what uh, the OpenIO product set is about, is object storage. So can you give the audience a high-level overview of object storage? Why is it called that? What's an object? Uh, so objects started a long time ago, actually. And first uh, academic paper was in the late 80s first implementation, a commercial implementation in the late 90s and, uh, and 2000, beginning of 2000. And mostly uh, were about the fact that this kind of uh, storage system okay, was based on the concept of objects. So you have uh, block storage, so you address single pieces of information that actually contains only a part of the whole information. And then you have the file, which is a complete uh, a document, for example, but it's positioned in, in the file system. So when we look for the data, you actually browse a directory. The object storage is quite different because uh, it carries data plus metadata, and it's unique in the system. So when you write an object, you get also a, a unique ID. So each object is unique in the system. And so at the beginning, it was a way to solve the uh, basic problem like, uh, for example, scalability of a file system. You have this flat namespace where all the objects are positioned and uh, the fact that objects is unique, opened it to many different applications that were not possible with file systems. And so that's an object. It's a kind of self-containing uh, box with all the information you need. So if I've got a file, like if I think of a file, in an object storage sense, that file could be made up of several different objects. Is that true? Well, actually, it could be. Maybe it's more in the, the back end. So when you write a file to an object store, potentially the best way to have it is to maintain a, a one-on-one, uh, so the parity between the file and the object. 
when the file becomes an object, you can additional metadata, which uh, can contain much more than uh, the usual, you know, date uh, when the file was created, the name of the user that created it. You can have much more than that. And many of these vendors are now implementing additional metadata, custom metadata to to make the, the object searchable, for example, to sometimes uh, you, you can run uh, operations when you ingest uh, the object so you can uh, have an index or uh, many other features are surfacing now thanks to metadata. Now, you also mentioned that with an object store, you get scalability and you get better scalability with an object store than with other kinds of storage. Can you explain how with an object store we would scale out? Right. You uh, With an object store, you lose all the constraints of the file system. Okay, So you can easily scale to trillions of objects today in the largest system. So that's the way. Uh, usually, all these object storage systems have a scale-out design, which means that each uh, single node that you add uh, some more resources to, to the cluster, and so it can be very, very big. In our case, for example, we have customers with uh, uh, 600, 700 nodes now, and 20 billion objects, I think, the largest customers we have. So actually, it's a huge amount of objects and uh, in a single namespace. So it's something that you can think to have in a single file system. Even think about uh, browsing and searching the, the single objects is quite impossible, single file in this case. So is all storage that's out there object at this point? I mean, is everything object storage or, or are there still use cases where for this sort of application, object storage is the best, but for a different sort of application, maybe you'd use a different kind of storage? Well, you know, it, uh, actually not. So we will never uh, lose the the other types of storage, okay? File storage will remain uh, and as well as uh, uh, block. If you want performance, pure performance, you, you will continue to do block. If you want uh, something that is accessible from everywhere, potentially you will go object, okay? So if you think about services like Dropbox or... Google Photo or many others, they are based on an object storage technology because they are huge and you have to access them from everywhere. And there is also the fact that the latency to access the object is usually much higher than the latency to to access a file or a block from an old storage device, for example. So the latency is quite different because in an object storage system, usually you have uh, latest that are, um, you know, in the orders of uh, many milliseconds, okay, which is uh, no longer the case for uh, old flash or uh, other systems. Enrico, I think you sell positives around object, especially when you're talking about a system that contains billions of objects, more billions of objects than there are people in the world, all with one namespace. Like, that has a lot of value. But I would imagine that, I mean, there's so much cool stuff going on in storage, you could get really nerdy about the flash technologies that are coming out, like NVMe over Fabric or 3D Crosspoint. You could get really nerdy about protocols and connectivity. It seems like, having read your blog, Object is really the thing for you. And I remember being at Data to Direct Networks, the DDN folks back at Tech Field Day 8, maybe in was it 2011 or so, and very first learning about Object. Is it just because it can scale so big? Is that why you find this to be one of the most interesting things today? It sounds like potentially this is maybe going to replace systems moving forward. You know, I'm just trying to really scratch that itch because object storage sounds very interesting, but I think you take it to the next level. Yeah, so look at this. The, the word is uh, 
splitting in two. Okay, and on one side you have this latency-driven workloads, and on the other side you have uh, high-capacity workloads. Okay, and they are quite different. Actually, if you look at when I was an analyst, you know, I tried to define this thing is uh, like in a, in the local performance and distributed performance. So when you are looking for a database and you want to access it very very quickly, you probably don't have a scale-out system. Potentially, you are going to in-memory storage, okay, or storage class memory now, and you want to access a small data set, but very, very quickly, okay? Even if small is not uh, always that small, okay? On the other side, you have an object, like a movie on Netflix, okay? This is accessed by hundreds of thousands of people at the same time, but it's actually, uh, you don't care about... uh, about the latency, because even if the first access is five seconds, who cares, okay? You care more about the throughput. You want uh, uh, it to be available always, okay? There are different metrics to to look at storage today. So in the case of, of object storage, yes, it will take the word in the sense that all the big sets of information will be stored on object, but actually it's not for performance at all, Okay. There are tons of use cases that uh, use objects as a backend, but actually, if you want a, at least a, also a minimum level of performance, you usually use a cache on, on the front end. Mm, okay, think about uh, all these uh, cloud gateways that we know on the market now. Now we there are many of them, and they have a, a lot of cache. Sometimes they use they use SSDs on the front end to give you performance. And uh, every now and then they sync the backend with the object store. Okay, so you have a persistent layer in the backend, which is potentially huge, and you have a large cache on the front end. So you are splitting the performance from the, the coupling, the performance from the front end and the backend. Okay, so performance isn't the central focus of object storage, but you're still going to have resilience, you're still going to have reliability, no matter what sort of data storage you've got, those are important. You mean you can't lose data ever. We're not talking about just a bit or two in flight, but long-term storage, drive failures are an issue, node failures happen, you can even have a site failure, there's bit rot. I mean, there's, there's all these opportunities to have a problem within your storage environment. So how does object storage handle these sorts of challenges? Right, that's... Uh... One of the most important things about object storage, since its beginning, it was uh, the fact that you don't store data in the same way you store in a traditional array, okay? You can do multiple copies of data, you can do erasure coding, okay? All of this is not the fastest way to store data, but actually is the most resilient way to store data. So I think about uh, my company, but actually it's the same for... uh, most of the object storage system, okay? When you store data, there is uh, also rack affinity, data center affinity, so you can build a cluster, very resilient, and even if it's stretched between two or three data center, because the system knows that uh, you are writing uh, the first piece of the object in a data center, so it will make that uh, sure that the second and the third copy will be in other data centers or in other racks. and. So there are a lot of mechanisms in place in the, in the object storage systems that allow you to be sure that you wouldn't want to lose your data. Also, there are some uh, mechanisms at a higher level, okay, just to, to be sure that, for example, you, uh, you will have a more version of the same objects, okay? So even if you delete an object, you have the old version. It's like, I can call it a snapshot, but actually 
you have several versions of the same object, so you won't lose your data. Okay, never. This is a kind of thing that it's not usual. So it, it also uses much more data than in another system. But actually, since it's not object storage is not usually based on uh, SSDs, usually we use hard disks. So the cost per gigabyte is very, very low. And it's all about resiliency, it's all about uh, reliability of the system, it's all about availability. takeaway from me listening to Enrico is that object stores are highly resilient by design. That's just kind of how they work. So he mentioned an algorithm, uh, erasure encoding, which is something we hope to do a show on in the future that allows for storage to be spread across disks, uh, physical disks and nodes, or even entire racks and data centers, depending on how you want to design it. You can even get versioning. So object storage may not be the most efficient or the fastest way to get at the data, but it is definitely the most available of the kinds of storage that are out there. At least that's the way I interpreted it. What was your takeaway, Chris? I like the idea of decoupling performance from capacity. You know, it's a wise idea. It's something we've seen in the virtualization world with server-side caching, write-through caching, write-back caching, just ways to intercept I.O. and kind of introduce locality to the data independent of where it actually ultimately rests. So it makes sense to have an enormous data set distributed globally. Object storage makes a lot of sense, but if you help the performance kind of issue, we'll say, the challenge, we'll say, adding little pockets of cache to increase data locality globally, potentially, you know, CDNs and such like that have been doing it for a while, makes a lot of sense so that you don't have to choose between file and block versus object. You could potentially consume object with cache pockets around it. I like that. As we pause the Datanauts infrastructure rocket for just a moment, let's talk about the conference the Packet Pushers are going to be at in May 2017, Interop ITX, and they are a sponsor of today's show. Interop ITX is where tech pros go to get objective, full-stack IT education, and it takes place May 15th through 19th at the MGM in Las Vegas. You can join me, Ethan Banks, along with Greg Farrow and Drew Conry-Murray of the Packet Pushers, where we will be putting on the Future of Networking Summit, and that is a two-day session where we're going to take a deep dive into next-generation developments in the WAN, data center networking, network operations, software-defined security, all the things that we think are emerging over the next one, five, and ten years. Register for Interop ITX and attend other hands-on workshops like the Future of Data, Container Crash Course, Dark Readings Cybersecurity Summit, and the Open Source IT Summit. The events conference tracks focus on security, DevOps, cloud, infrastructure, data and analytics, all the technologies you need for a successful full-stack IT strategy. If you're looking to accelerate your career, there's also plenty of sessions on leadership and professional development. Plus, check out over 100 vendors at Interop ITX's business hall, where you'll have the opportunity to check out what leading and emerging tech vendors have to offer. Join us at Interop ITX this coming May and use promo code PACKETPUSHERS when you register, and you'll receive a 20% discount. We want to see you in Vegas, so go on up to interopitx.com and reserve your spot today. Enrico, we've discussed a bit about object storage. You've given us an overview, so we have some idea of what that's all about now. You have joined OpenIO as the head of product strategy. Why did you do that? <laughs> Seriously, though, I mean, what, what led you down this path of being a head of product strategy at OpenIO? Because you were kind of independent, doing your own thing before. Well, actually, yes, and I was uh, doing very, very good. But uh, after a while, I was there thinking about the next step in my career and what I could do next. And I 
I've been meeting with uh, startups for years now, so I was uh, fascinated by this world. Okay, and uh, I met uh, OpenIO guys in uh, June 2016 for the second time, and they offered me to to work with them on a project. We had the chance to you know know better each other, and um, we stayed in contact. And in uh, October, November, I did a second work with them. Um, you know, they, they are really, really good in what they're doing. They are all engineers. So I am Italian and not an engineer. So I am trying to, to bring to the company a, a different point of view on, on things and uh, more on the field, more, uh, more on uh, enterprise use spaces that I covered a lot in the last uh, few years. So, and that's it. So they need someone to shape the roadmap of the product because the core is uh, very, very good. But actually, we, we are a small company, so we are in the phase that we are, we are choosing what to do next in terms of products, in terms of, uh, of features. So. And that's really important, having spent about a year and a half at a startup. Sometimes choosing what to build next is more important than what you actually select. You know, just having gone through the process and choosing something and saying, this is the thing we're going to build, having the knowledge of you know, what the field's seeing, what the enterprise experience is, is telling you. So that you focus on it is better than, well, we can't choose. We're going to build all four of these things. They're going to take forever because we've split our engineering time. And so right. prioritization can be important. One thing, though, that I really liked was I think recently you published a blog post on you kind of compare storage services and data services. And right. I want right. to compliment you because it really got me thinking because I had kind of lumped those two together. And so first, I, I want to quote some of your article. I've got I'm, the link is in the show notes. It's really worth a read. I think it's. It's on a vendor blog, but it's really not vendory. It's a really great insights from Enrico. And uh, you talk about one of the great innovations in the late 90s and early 2000s was data services. You list them at the time. Data services in your mind was classified as you know snapshots, making copies of data virtually, clones, advanced replication, et cetera. And then you realize, well, no, that's not necessarily true. So very long way of saying, what are the differences between data services and store services, especially today? Yeah, you know what? The the problem with data services as we know them is that actually we are not working with data. We are working with the volume, with the container of the data, okay? So we are making copies, we are doing, but we are not analyzing the content of the data. We are not building anything out of it. And I think is now we have the tools to do something different. I'm not telling that just object storage can do that. But actually, because we have metadata and because we have full control of the object, my company, for example, built a serverless framework, okay? And uh, it's more or less very similar to what happens with, uh, with Amazon S3 and Lambda. So you, you put an object in, in the object store and uh, an event uh, is triggered and uh, you pass the event to an application and the application can use the object, okay, for elaboration, to add additional metadata. And we have some really, really compelling use cases with our concern. That's a data services, right? So you are just analyzing and you are building some with that data that maybe could produce other data. That's a data service for me. It's not uh, just copying data around or not that uh, storage services aren't important. Actually, they are. But the data service is another thing and uh, opens a lot of potential new application and, uh, that you can run directly into the storage system. Mm. So we're not looking at, like as you say, the container, it's not about the volume, the data store, the LUN, whatever that is. But realistically, 
especially with object store, I'm thinking if we're treating everything as an object and the object is kind of the world view of data, then it makes sense to have data services that surround specifically the data. Like literally, we can offer services for that object or group of objects based on what they are, what the metadata is, et cetera, where we don't care about. I mean, there's no such construct as a volume at that point. It, it just doesn't even exist anymore. Right. If you think, for example, that we have a customer, and we work with him with this um, serverless framework, okay, and now we are able, he is ingesting videos, okay. For each single video, when the video is saved in the system and all the replication are done and uh, so on, there is a process to start. Um, it transcodes the video to get the right bitrate, and uh, there is a watermark added to the video and some metadata for copyright information and uh, the description of the video coming from uh, I don't know where. And at the end, a new object is created, and this object is, is complete, okay, with the information that were not uh, available before, and it's ready for streaming, okay, directly from the HTTP interface of the, of the storage. This saves a lot mm, of time. Okay. It's not just... Uh, the fact that you did a copy, okay, you did a copy, you did some operations on the copy of the data. So that, that's the difference. Interesting. Kind of cuts out the middleman. You're not working with a file system or really having to address an NAA or an iSCSI, you know, IQN. It's literally, here's an object, I want to do something to it. Could you potentially put that in a workflow? Say, you know, when something's created, here's the triggers that I want to happen. I'm just thinking, man, you're just eliminating a lot of the overhead involved from handling the storage architecture, the server on top of it, potentially just saying, as you... Just pass go, collect $200, do something to the object, and I'm done. That's right. That seems pretty cool. If you think at AWS, you just search Lambda and Big Data, you will find tons of articles of guys building Big Data clusters on top of AWS Lambda. Actually, they are not building anything. They are just putting the code on AWS, and they are enabling features that were not possible. And it's just when you save the data, then you run analytics on it. And think about a log file, okay? When you put a, a log file and you recognize uh, that it is a log file, you can run on top of it uh, pattern matching to see if some, someone is, uh, you know, it's accessing the right server, for example, or uh, you want to raise a flag or anything else, okay? So it's really, really powerful. This is just a matter of imagination now. It's just such a, it's a really different way to think about things because when you, you break up the IT stack, you always think in terms of, there's compute and there's storage and there's networking and, and you just kind of break everything out into these component pieces and parts. In the way you're describing it, it almost, almost like that storage, well, object for lack of a better word here, disappears as a, as a thing and you just begin to address it directly and then act upon it without having to worry about the store that's been created and you know managing it and, and so on. It's a, it's a different way to think about it. Yeah, and consider that in uh, this kind of systems, so you don't have an hypervisor, you don't have a container management, you don't have a orchestration, it's just an event and the application associated to that event or that uh, bucket or that whatever, okay? It's very, very easy. Also, think about, uh, if you think, uh, rethink about the application, it's very, very easy for the, for the developer, but at the same time, it's really, really efficient, Okay, because the object storage is not uh, it's not really complex. Okay, we started to thinking about uh, this uh, this kind of uh, framework because our customers saw that ninety percent of the server were doing nothing, <laughs> so they asked it to to make them more efficient. But actually, our problem was the 
Intel CPUs were were too powerful, and uh, so <laughs> it's a, such a first world problem to have. Like, ah, oh, our CPUs are too good, and they're not doing anything. You know, like what can we make happen to make that actually? You know, it reminds me of the days when we started virtualizing, because all of our servers were sitting around at 20 percent load, you know, tops, and we're like, what if we crammed all these together as a consolidation play? This sounds kind of similar at at the blush level, at the high level. But obviously, way different, you know, intentions for the the end goal. So that that's interesting. Actually, we are working on two fronts. One is uh, with this uh, grid for apps, which is the name of our yes, framework. Yes, I want to talk about that. Yeah, tell me about grid for apps because I, I saw that mentioned quite a bit on the on the site, and it it piqued my interest. Actually, we already uh, talked about it because uh, grid for apps is just our implementation of a uh, serverless storage. Okay, and uh, the idea is to take advantage of. Uh, of what we have in the cluster, okay, and run applications that uh, access directly to the data without hypervisors, without containers, without anything, okay? You just your application. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can describe it as the ultimate uh, hyperconverged system, okay? We are not running SAP, we are not running uh, exchange or standard applications. But actually, if you need to run uh, simple tasks that are really, really repetitive and uh, you want to to do something directly on the data, even think about uh, pattern matching or uh, deep learning. Uh, If you want to analyze each single image that comes in to to find a pattern, it's uh, the ultimate uh, system to do that. In fact, we are are, uh, working with a fancy university to to put together some uh, deep learning stuff on top of our grid for apps to see if we can uh, automate uh, uh, this kind of uh, deep learning uh, applications a little bit more. And uh, at the same time, because, uh, you know, the CPUs were too powerful, we we moved uh, to ARM CPUs also. So consider that our objects can run uh, on an ARM CPU on a Raspberry Pi Zero, which is 500 megs and one core CPU. And so we started thinking about that and we launched a product that in at the end of 2016, which is a, a nano node. Each single nano node is a, a small motherboard with a ARM CPU, two cores and two ethernet ports and 32 gigabyte of SSD and two gigabytes of RAM in front of the disk. And the disk is plugged in in a four U rack system. At the end, you have 96 disks in four units, which is a full functioning cluster, object storage cluster, of course. And uh, it's optimized for dollar per gigabyte because uh, the ARM CPUs are really low in power consumption. And it's quite interesting. So we can do both directions. So very efficient system with hyperconversions and very very efficient systems in terms that we don't run application, but actually we can use very, very low power CPUs and that kind of stuff. When you think about offering data services that are coupled directly with the object itself, you know, that's the term we'll use for this particular scenario. I think the world of storage becomes incredibly interesting. You know, obviously chatting with Enrico has piqued my interest around the services portion because you know data just in and of itself isn't that interesting it's really what you do with it and certainly more interesting than speeds and beads and tactical bits and bytes being able to offer rich services and eliminating a lot of the stack i don't know that's really interesting to me ethan what was your takeaway from that section 
very much the same thing, although, you know, since I don't live in the world of storage, I think my brain wrapped around the ideas a little differently. But I think I ended up in roughly the same takeaway that you did, which was this. The way Enrico described it, we, we got into this discussion around uh, storage in the context of, of serverless or functions as a service. So you break down storage into these programmatically addressable objects. And that's really we're seeing that across infrastructure tiers. We're remodeling infrastructure, infrastructure as code, et cetera. It's kind of that sounds like to me what we were describing with object storage on the back end of serverless. I mean, it's not that object storage is new, right? But acting on data objects in this way that Enrico described as he talked about serverless, it seemed to me like it was a different way of thinking about it. You're abstracting the hardware in such a way that you can allow for this presumption of availability and allow developers to focus on just interacting with that data no matter what the infrastructure context is. This is the way my siloed brain is thinking about it. Hopefully I got it close to right. I think we have a pretty good introductory understanding to object storage, as well as something I've never heard before, which was serverless storage. So I'm I'm so excited about the new acronyms and technical terms that we can come up with to describe all the crazy things they were doing in IT. Let's pivot a little bit, though. Let's talk about some of the community-focused work that you've done and the independent work that you've done prior to joining OpenIO, specifically Juku.it, your blog website where you pontificated quite a bit yeah. on various storage platforms. You know, are you still looking to continue doing that? The best of your efforts? I know startup world, is, it sucks the energy out of you because it, it demands a lot of work. Do you still plan on doing that a little bit or something else on the side? Well, uh, Jukubility will, will continue. I have to find uh, the new philosophy of uh, behind it because uh, it was all about me, all about uh, my independent work as, um, as an analyst, as a blogger. Now uh, it will become more a personal blog, I think. So it will still cover storage maybe more than uh, on my personal point of view so discussion with the customers that i have so more field stuff and less commenting on uh, where market goes also because it's really really tough to comment on uh, other vendors sometimes and i <laughs> yeah, don't because you're doing the evil to... side you're one yeah, of us actually... now you are evil <laughs> so... <laughs> But you could talk about how to how to do a distributed object store on a sailboat. You know, that's I mean, there's going to be people that want to read that. Yeah, if you need help. Let me know. I will come help with that. Sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, you are always uh, on the list. So the day you will come to Rimini and you just yes, you can go out uh, sailing trip and talk storage, of course, all the time. Not fishing, not not good room storage. Well, Enrico, you, uh, you you were one of the front men for the Tech Unplugged conference that's been held in Europe and in the U.S. at the very least. Um, I spoke at the Chicago event last fall. What's going to happen to the Tech Unplugged now that you're at OpenIO? So I started the event because I feel the, the user at some point to have a better connection with the field and the vendors all together in, in a room. And Ariane always opened me. So Ariane Timmerman, which is uh, another blogger, and uh, he did a great job in uh, supporting the event at the beginning. Then it, it became uh, one of the uh, organizers. So when I decided to, to join a, a vendor, I felt that it was not the case to continue to the, the independent stuff for the same reason that I, that I told you about Juku. So I can't be independent and and dependent at the same time. It's, uh, it doesn't make any sense, okay? So I asked him to continue the, uh, the work, and in fact, they are going to, to have uh, the first session in, uh, in May, end of April, beginning of the main, uh, in, in UK. So they are um, 
they are already contacting uh, the bloggers and uh, all the stuff. So they are going to organize the same identical event, more or less. And they are also, they are maybe more organized than me. So don't, don't say <laughs> it out loud, actually. So, so Tech Unplugged is going to continue. Just uh, you're, you're stepping away because you, you don't – since it's supposed to reflect an independent viewpoint, you work for a vendor. You, you, you're, you're not going to be driving the show, but, uh, but Aryan is. Yeah, maybe we, you will find them, especially in the European events, you know, and uh, we'll be there buying a beer the night before because there is this tech unplugged uh, during the day, but the night before there is um, tech beers or storage beers. So it's an even more informal uh, part of the event. Which, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's a big part of any of the, those events. It's, it's funny, I wrote a, a newsletter, uh, it might have been the last newsletter I've, I've written in my, uh, my Hot Isle newsletter. Uh, but it was about conferences, and one of the major points that uh, in talking to different people about conferences and uh, events like that and why they go is for the the people networking, actually getting to talk to other folks who are technical, either experts or just people that are in their tribe, people with the same kind of challenges and day-to-day job responsibilities as they have, and getting to know those folks and make friends and uh, and all of that. So yeah, the uh, right, the tech beers and the storage beers and whatever makes total sense, because that's that you can really get together with someone without the challenge of a presentation going on in front of you that you really need to be paying attention to and just kind of relax and get to know some folks that are experiencing the same kind of things that you are and have the same interests and exchange knowledge and you know, walk away since uh, since we have this whole internet thing, we can walk away and, and keep up with all of these folks, even if we don't live close, which is great. Yeah, actually, when I, when I told you Phil Deurge, it was because by doing all these startup things, talking a lot with the vendors, sometimes you lose the feeling of what is happening in the field. I organized Tech Unplugged at the beginning just to get uh, uh, 50 people together in a room. They are end users. So you, you get uh, in touch with them. You, you, uh, you listen to their stories and uh, they, they are curious about your opinion. So at the end of the day, it's great because the interaction. And, you know, last year in, in UK, we got 75 end users attending and it was Massive, I think, because I got a lot of information, a lot of real-world trends. You know, you know when we talk about containers and cloud, and and then you talk with real people doing stuff, and then yeah, you know, we are interesting, but actually we are not really using it, or we are massive fans of it. It's like uh, getting the latest and uh, and the best of the information from anyone. Also, because the beer helps a lot. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, getting an invite to come out and speak, I think, in the London event right before I joined with Rubric. And I was like, darn, I really wanted to go. You know, you you were both in the Cool Kids Club, and I've never <laughs> I've never gotten the chance to present there, but I've heard really good things. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that it's not ending with your transition to the vendor world, that it will continue just with other folks kind of holding the torch moving forward. No, no, fortunately, it won't, uh, it won't stop, so... Uh... I'm happy about that. Can't stop, won't stop. That's our saying. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think this is a great place to kind of pause things from uh, object storage and community level here. Uh, We've taken up plenty of your time, Enrico. Before we go, though, I'd like to thank you for joining the show and enlightening everybody on your passion behind object store. Uh, If they wanted to get a hold of you or learn more, do you have any links or, or Twitter handles or whatnot that they could use to follow your information? Well, actually, I always say just search on Google for Juku, which is written uh, J-U-K-U, and Enrico. You will find me on several uh, 
social networks and uh, just connect with me and we can uh, start to talk. I can also say that uh, I'm writing uh, on the blog of my company. So openio.io slash blog is another good uh, place where you can find me. I will try, I promise, to be, or at least as much as I can, informative and uh, educative about object storage more than selling just my product. So keep uh, reading and that's it. That's fair. No, that, that's the best anyone could ever hope when they go to a vendor blog, for sure. That's it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. If you're a social creature, we know you are. Go ahead and do a follow on at Chris Wall on the Twitters, and my blog is wallnetwork.com. And my good buddy, Ethan, he's at EC Banks on the Twitters, and his blog is ethancbanks.com. For more of our Data Knot shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole. It is packetpushers.net. You're going to find the Data Knots talking about containers, conferences, certifications, full stack engineering, obviously storage, and so much more. But until then, my friends, may your server lights blink, your storage have plentiful objects, and your cables be cleanly managed. Objects that I hoo hoo! <laughs> <laughs>